Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What. Today I've got Mark Smuckler on and he's the founder of Flow. Hi Mark. Hey Daniel, thanks very much for having me today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Mark, let's jump straight in. Do you want to tell everyone a bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I'm currently the founder of a company called Flow, uh, which is an app that gives users on-demand access to the best nearby co-working spaces, gyms, spas, and experiences. Sorry, so you're, you're in the tech space then? I'm in the tech space, that's right. And I've been an entrepreneur in tech for about the last 10 years and really specifically spend most of my time in prop tech or real estate tech. Okay, so I don't really know much about prop tech or real estate tech is this a relatively new industry is it up and coming is there lots of opportunity in it yeah i'd say it's relatively it's relatively new starting to hit the mainstream i think um when i when i kind of first started my career in prop tech around this 2015 2016 the the very first prop tech dedicated vc fund called metaprop uh, launched and fast forward to today, about five years later, there are probably over a hundred different real estate wow. tech and prop tech dedicated funds. So that just gives you a sense of kind of the growth and the maturity of the sector. Um, I'd say it's it's kind of nowhere near fintech, for example, but is probably trailing not so far behind. So how did you decide or why did you decide to go into prop tech? I'd say I didn't really decide to go into prop tech so much as kind of fell into it. And um, to go a little bit kind of back before I started in prop tech, I was a freelance software engineer. Um, and even before that, I was an investment banker. So I've, I've, my career has meandered quite a bit. Um, but I was living in New York as a freelance software engineer around 2004, 2005 and started building websites for real estate companies. And it kind of happened serendipitously from the perspective of, I signed one client who needed me to build them a website for their real estate portfolio. And that included things like their properties, the, the team, their vacancies, how to contact them, you know, a very basic marketing website. And then I started to build other similar websites for other real estate companies. And before long, I kind of became known, I guess, as a freelancer for building these kinds of websites. And so that was really my introduction into the real estate industry. And then that gave me the opportunity to kind of look in and recognize that there are quite a few inefficiencies across the sector. It's real estate's one of the largest asset classes in the world, and it's also one of the oldest, but it's it's kind of widely known as a laggard when it comes to the adoption of technology. And so I, I identified a ton of analog processes and things that could be optimized through technology. And that was really where my interest in real estate tech or prop tech started. Wow. So you go from being a freelance software engineer and then you start Bixby, right? Yeah, that's right. So at the end of 2015, we started Bixby, which was an app that we built to help property managers, specifically apartment communities, uh, deliver a better resident experience. So how was that whole experience of starting a company? And because you, you eventually sold it, right? Yeah, we did eventually sell it in 2019. So it was about a four-year journey. 
it was things you often hear about an entrepreneurial journey, I suppose, or taking a startup to to an exit. Um, At first, it was exciting and exhilarating. Uh, It was also uh, daunting and at times terrifying. It was very challenging. It had tons of up and downs um, and ultimately was an extremely fulfilling experience that I'm very grateful and, and fortunate to have had. So at Bixby, did you do any hiring of staff? Yeah, we grew our team to about 15, uh, I guess, 14 or 15 individuals at our largest. Okay. I think we were always a pretty lean team. And when we first, when we first started, we definitely weren't the company that raised a million or 5 million or 10 million right out of the gate. Um, you know, we raised 50,000 from friends and family, and then we signed our first customers and then we signed, and then we raised 200,000 or 250,000 from angel investors. And that's when we made a couple hires and then we continued to grow the business and we eventually raised a million dollars seed round. Um, but we always operated the business with a very lean mentality and, and yeah, uh, the business to about 15 people, which, which certainly felt. Uh, like a lot at the time, especially yeah. going from from one or, or two people in a room to, to 15 in an office. So I guess any of this could be applied to any number of different sort of tech careers. It doesn't have to be prop tech, it could be fintech or insurer tech or whatever. But when you're making a hire in this space, what were some things that you looked for in a candidate? How could they stand out to you? Um, and maybe some crucial skills that you thought really helped people? That's a great question. So I, I think the number one thing it for, it is passion, one. Um, passion for what the business is doing, the vision of the business. And you can show passion a lot of, a lot of ways. One, doing things that most other people won't, which is, for example, reaching out to a founder cold either emailing them or messaging them on LinkedIn. I think you hear a lot of really great stories about individuals who get into companies really early by taking that chance and, mm. and sending out that message. I think a lot of people feel like it's it's not the proper channel. It's unlikely that someone will get back to them. Uh, potentially it's, it's rude. I don't think any of those are the case. And it's really... Uh, at least for me, it was really, really refreshing when people reached out early and said, hey, I saw what you were doing. I read that article. I listened to that podcast. I believe in, in similar things and, I'd, and I want to help be part of this journey. So I think that goes a really, a really long way. Um, yeah. Uh, and what about some, maybe some skill sets that people could be building to actually make themselves valuable in the world of tech? Yeah, so I think it kind of depends on where tech, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, people really thought about tech as, I guess, what today we call deep tech. You know, basically, if you're in tech, that means you're a software engineer. But of course, that's not the case, right? Every technology company has verticals and departments that every other business has, sales, marketing, operations. So first probably need to take a look at what your experience has been thus far and where do you want your career to go and where does your experience best lend itself to helping an organization 
The interesting thing about startups at their early stage, however, is that everyone kind of wears a, a lot of hats. And so at some point in the company's maturity, the company is going to start to hire for very specific roles with very specific experience. In the early days, the company needs so much help across so many different components of the business that honestly, if you bring passion and you bring experience in something and you're clear about how you can or want to contribute to that business, you probably have a decent job of, of getting a role at that mm. company. And for you, I mean, we always talk about uh, university versus going straight into work. Um, I'm personally a bit of an adv advocate for going straight into work. Um, it's what I did, and I, I don't necessarily see as much value in university as possibly there used to be. Uh, but from your point of view as, as an employer, um, do you look at people with degrees slightly differently to those who just want to get on and, and jump into work? It's, yeah, it's a really interesting point, and I tend to agree with you. Um, it, and it was interesting for me because I remembered I spent three years working in investment banking and my second year at the company, I was part of the recruiting process. And I remember getting a stack of paper resumes and the process that was explained to me was cool. So you've got a couple hundred resumes here. First thing is cut everybody that doesn't have a certain GPA. I said, well, why would you why would you do that and they said look it's it's simply a, a numbers it's simply a numbers thing you can't you can't possibly sit here and review all of these resumes you're going to spend less than 60 seconds on each anyway the best way for you to cut down the, the stack on your desk is to is to pick something right um, and it's and the most objective thing that's on this resume that's consistent across every single one of these is the grade point average, the GPA. And so, and I suspect that's kind of still how a lot of larger organizations and certainly investment banks or financial institutions uh, look at the recruiting process. When I started to hire for Bixby, it was... I don't even, I don't know anybody's GPA that worked for us. Honestly, I don't even recall where most people went to school or if they went to school. Mm. What I can say is that I certainly did not, it certainly did not matter to me if they went to university or not. And I agree that I think as time goes on, the programs that universities provide really are not for everybody. And that traditional path is not for everybody. And I'd also tend, I don't think I've yet really encouraged somebody to skip university, but I can really see myself doing so. If you know what you're passionate about, or if you have a passion and you want to pursue it, you know, don't waste time and go for it. So I, I think the conventional wisdom is it's likely harder to get a role without a university degree than if you have one. But if somebody were to apply, if somebody were to reach out to me on Flow tomorrow and or reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, Mark, I really like what you're doing on, at Flow and I think I can, be, I can be helpful and I believe in the vision, I'd, I certainly would not ask if they went to school or where they went to school. And it really wouldn't matter to me. 
Yeah, I think I think that's. I, I mean, I completely agree with your opinion, and I think the whole thing about uh, people having a degree versus not having a degree and their likelihood of getting a position. I think if you apply the traditional route, so you, like you said, you send your CV in and you go through the sort of interview process. I agree. I think if you don't have a degree, that's a harder process. But what I advocate for is exactly what you've just said, is to actually reach out to founders or, or showcase your work to them in some way that would make them go, actually, well, I don't really care what you did previously. You've got a skill set that I want in my business. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And, and I can't tell you how many resumes I've looked at or people I've spoken to that have degrees in history or philosophy, which or, or, you know, English or writing, which are really, you know, valuable things to know and understand and have studied, but they're now working in graphic design, right? And I yeah. couldn't care less. I mean, well, not so that I couldn't care less, but I don't really care what they wrote their dissertation on or, you know, what they wrote their thesis on in college. What I care about is their graphic design portfolio right? yeah. and the work that they do. Awesome. Um, I'd like to talk a bit more about what you're doing at the moment. So flow. So if you go in a bit more depth about, about what the company is and, and what you're doing there. Sure. Yeah. So flow is an app that makes it easy for people to discover and access the places around them. We help businesses like co-working spaces, gyms, and spas attract customers by offering a flexible pay as you go alternative to memberships and, and commitments. Um, the idea really came to me during COVID, but over the last 10 years as a freelancer, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's been not a complete digital nomad, but relatively nomadic, I've found that it's, it's always been really difficult for me to access the places that I need. For example, a working space to work for a day or a week when I'm, when I'm in a new city. Uh, or a gym to work out in uh, without having to make a commitment or a membership. And I've often haven't been in a position to make that commitment, right? Mm. So either I'm traveling between cities, launching new buildings with Bixby, and I'm only there for a week or two weeks. And I, you know, I can't make that. It doesn't make sense for me to take that monthly commitment. Um, or, um, you know, I'm in a new part of town. Uh, for example, in New York, I lived in Brooklyn. Uh, let's say I'm in the Upper East Side for meetings. My my office or my co-working space is all the way back in Brooklyn. I don't necessarily want to or need to go all the way back to Brooklyn to get to that office. I know that I'm surrounded by other great co-working spaces and offices right where I am. Why is it so difficult for me to know that they're there and and then be able to access them? And I'm willing to pay for them. And that might be an anecdote of somebody who's traveling quite a bit and moving around. Uh, I lived in like, I think, 12 different apartments in the last 10 years in New York. Wow. So, so I have moved quite a bit. Um, but during COVID, I recognized that remote work may give individuals the flexibility and the freedom to live life in, in a way that that doesn't look that dissimilar from the way that I've lived my life over the last 10 years, right? If you untether that person from the office, the place that they have to go every single day, in theory, you give them the opportunity to move around much more freely, right? And coordinate their day based on the things that they need to do and the places they need to be versus 
sitting in that same desk at the, you know, sitting in that same chair at that same desk at that same office. And so in order to accommodate that kind of lifestyle, I recognized that businesses were going to have to accommodate that kind of consumer and a membership just wasn't going to do it. And furthermore, memberships restricted, in my mind, a lot of people from participating in that in, in that business, mm. right? Um, so I wanted to make it easier for people to discover and access places uh, wherever they are, whenever they need. And we really started with three core verticals of work, fitness, and self-care, kind of the three kinds of places that you might need to live the perfect day. I think it's a brilliant idea, you know, just thinking about the future of work and how we're actually becoming detached from having massive offices where we have hundreds of people. It, it's just not going to be the way forward anymore. But as people go to meetings with clients and, and, you know, they might be in different areas all the time, they want access to these facilities. But you're right. I wouldn't have any idea where, you know, for example, my local, you know, uh, drop in office was, you know, I wouldn't know where to look for one. You know, there's some big names out there who you would think of, but like you say, the membership puts you off. So it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad it resonates with you. And to your point, like London alone is filled with these incredible environments, you know, whether it's Mortimer House in Fitzrovia or Nordic Balance Gym in St. James or uh, Neighborhood Works in Hackney, there are these really incredible offices, gyms, meditation and leisure centers. And you often just don't know that they're there. And even if you did know, you wouldn't know how to get in or if you could get in. And I think that in a, in a world where individuals can work remotely, it's, it's really an incredible quality of life upgrade. Uh, but in order to really take advantage of that kind of lifestyle, uh, businesses need to uh, be more accommodative to that kind of consumer. It's interesting, isn't it? What do you personally think the future of work looks like for, for most of us? Well, I spent most of lockdown thinking about that question. And I'd say it took me probably six months to come to some kind of perspective. And uh, the perspective that I came to was that people will go back to the office, just not the way that they used to. And so eventually I, I came to the, to the thesis or the belief that hybrid, um, hybrid distributed, whatever you want to call it, was here to stay in some capacity. And I thought that you'd kind of see two things. One, a ton of growth in what I call the autonomous worker. So that's a freelancer, uh, a someone who's self-employed, an entrepreneur, a founder, and you, you're seeing it in the great resignation, right? Or what they're calling the great resignation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of people going off, really having had the time to think about what they want from life, what they want from their career. And some of those individuals saying, jumping into entrepreneurship and saying that, I want to be my own boss. I want to build my own business. I want to create value for the world in this particular product or service that, that I can bring to market. And I think that we, over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen tremendous growth in the number of freelancers, for lack of a better term, as part of corporate, the kind of corporate work economy. And I think we're going to continue to see that kind of growth. And then 
on the other side, the interest, what's really interesting to me is that I think that your average corporate worker is going to start to look and behave much more similarly to that kind of autonomous worker than before. Mm. Meaning that it, an individual who doesn't consider themselves a freelancer, an entrepreneur, a digital nomad, and, and goes to the office and works for a large organization, well, they might only go to the office two or three days a week. And the other days, they may work from home, they may work from a cafe, they may work from a co-working space. And to me, that, that represents that they're really blending to an extent in their consumer characteristics with, you know, on, on one hand, the extreme of the digital nomad who's completely untethered from any location, from city to city. On the other end of the spectrum, the corporate worker who goes to the same office each and every day. I think those two are really going to start to blend uh, in a certain way. And, and I think that's kind of what the future of work is all about. And I think it's, I think it's a really great development because I think it will allow people to, to be more collaborative, especially cross company. I think it will push people to create their own businesses, which I think is, is good for the world and good for economies overall. Uh, so yeah, I'm really optimistic about what's going to happen over the next 10 years. I 100% agree with your vision. I think that's exactly how it will play out, you know, like you say. And I think if big companies don't actually get on board with flexible working, allowing people to work from home, then people will look for companies where that is an option and that is a choice. It, when you look back, I always think it's quite a Dickensian to actually think, you know, you were told by a big company that you have to be at a desk from nine till five. Well, actually, with technology nowadays, why do we need to do that? What if we, you know, want to work from home one day because somebody's coming around to do some building work or something? You need to get a quote or you want to pick your kids up early. You have hours you need to work, but when and where you do those is not really a problem anymore, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, it's, it's almost comical, right? You yeah. can imagine 50 years ago when the technology was at the workspace, right? Yeah. You know, whether you're talking about a manufacturing plant or um, a technology company in the 80s, you needed to, or, or a financial institution, you needed to go to the office because that's where your phone was, that's where your computer was, the servers were in the office. You know, there was a very good or, or very clear specific reason for why you needed to go to that place. Yeah. But but now, you know, we, we take our laptops, we bring them to work, we sit down, we take them home with us. And you know, that that purpose of that space has completely changed. And yet, you know, at least up until the pandemic, the the habit or the ritual of going to the office didn't. And you know, it's it's so interesting that it took COVID and this forced yeah. work, work from home experience for people to real to kind of realize and say, well, hey, how necessary is this? Is it is it and what are the benefits of it? And and what are the drawbacks? It's incredible when you take a, a step back and actually think about what we used to do. You know, I used to work for a big corporate in the city. Um, and you'd spend two hours a day commuting in 
two hours a day commuting out and you'd sit at your desk and you'd play, you know, some people play the game of, oh, I'm going to wait another half an hour. So I look like I've been at my desk longer. And you think, how much of our lives did we just waste sitting there when actually companies probably could have got more out of us from us being at home because you're more likely to log on a bit earlier. You might work a bit later because, you know, you don't have to rush home and cook dinner because you're already there. So it's it's just a really interesting development, isn't it? it? It really is. And it's kind of interesting. What you just explained is almost, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is. Right? <laughs> right? It, it is absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, the world is filled with very smart business leaders. How come it took so long for one of those leaders who were also doing that two-hour commute to stand up and say, oh, you know, this doesn't it just doesn't make that much sense anymore yeah yeah 100 percent agree um so what does the future of flow look like what are you guys up to at the moment yeah so currently we only operate in london and uh at the moment we work with a little over 50 location partners and we have about a thousand users or so founders, freelancers, entrepreneurs, nomads, remote workers um, that use our app to find their flow every day uh, by finding the right place at the right time. And our business gets really exciting when we uh, when we expand geographically, right? I think mm. if you've read anything about kind of Brian Chesky's views on the future of travel, um, and how there's going to be a revolution in travel on the back of remote work, again, because people are untethered from the office, then you know, the world becomes a much smaller place. Globalization accelerates and people can move around even more than they could before. Yeah. And so you know, flow is really helpful to the individual who, you know, the traveling salesman who goes from East London to West London for meetings and then needs a place to to work or rest and recover in West London, or for the person that kind of lives on the outskirts of London and comes in for meetings and has an hour to kill here and an hour to kill there and needs a good place to shoot out some emails. Um, but you really, really feel the pain when you travel. You know, I'm gonna go back to New York for the holidays for two weeks to visit my family. And that's a place where I, you know, I, I don't have an office, I, I don't, have a co-working space. I don't have a gym. And if I want to live any sub semblance of you know, the life I, I, or the day and the kind of day that I try to live, I need this kind of access. And so the, the long-term vision or the goal for flow is to be in a hundred, the hundred largest cities in the world wow. over the next 10 years. Um, and so we've got, we've got quite a, quite a journey ahead of us and i think we've got our eyes on new york and miami as the next markets that we want to launch in and then uh, of course i have to mention because i've been losing sleep going down rabbit holes thinking about web3 and nfts yes. and cryptocurrency yes um we're working on some exciting things there to make membership more flexible and bring location-based services into the web into web3 and so that's taking a lot of time and focus and something I'm really excited to pursue further. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat, Mark. Um, I love talking to people like you. Um, I get excited even though I'm not even part of the business, but it sounds amazing. and I think it's a great idea. Well, thanks so much for having me, Daniel. And if it's okay, I want to ask you, I want to leave you with a question. 
yeah, sure. um, that I like asking people now, which is, uh, is there and, and what is kind of the one thing that remote work has allowed you to do that you haven't been able to do before? And I'll give you a, an example from my side, which is a simple one, but, but a pretty meaningful one to me, which is I get to walk my girlfriend and my dog to work in the morning. Nice. Yeah, I and, guess. I guess for me, um, you know, I guess working out as a weird one, you know, otherwise it always seems to get pushed right to the beginning of the day or right to the end of the day. But for me, it allowed me to sort of pick and choose uh, how and uh, when to, to look after myself, which is a massively important thing to me. Yep. Great answer. There's nothing better than um, you've got an hour between calls in the middle of the day and you can just jump out for a run. Yes. Yeah. When, when could you have done that before? And it, you get back to your desk more motivated, more energized. And I think it's a great example of, of the kind of freedom and flexibility that remote work offers people. Brilliant. It's, it's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you again. Thanks, Daniel. Take care.